So it's November 2nd, 2014 in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and this is a practical seminar for teachers and preachers and anybody who wants to help somebody. I'm going to be looking at application. Um, <coughs> this particular seminar is one of the, let's call it the seven laws of the lunar. It was developed. What are you doing? What? It was developed um, by Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. And I took the seminar from him twice. I also taught it in a number of places in its entirety. So this is just one of seven principles. So first we're going to look at why do we learn? You're not getting any handouts, no. I mean, if you want something, just email me and I'll send you something. I can send you the whole PowerPoint if you want. I can send you a whole summary of the whole book if you want. I don't have the book itself that you'd have to purchase. Okay, why do we learn anything spiritual? I mean, we could also say, why do we learn anything? Anything. <laughs> but let's look here particularly at something related to Krishna consciousness. Why are we learning it? Are we learning it just for information? Are we learning something? Are we learning something just so that we can repeat information? So we can take an exam and say, okay, what are the Sanskrit and English names for the three modes of material nature? What's the Sanskrit and English names for the stages of bhakti? Everybody understands English here? Yes? Okay. Am I speaking slowly and clearly enough? Yes? Okay. Uh, if there's anything I say that you don't understand, you will ask me, yes? 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 Is this an agreement? Yes? Okay, good. So our purpose is not just so that we can uh, give a list of information or a list of facts. That's not why we're teaching. We're teaching so people can become perfect in Krishna consciousness, consciousness of Krishna, awareness of Krishna. So they can become enlightened beings, full in love of God, pure devotees. And so they can help other people to achieve that state of consciousness. That is why we are teaching. We're teaching for a change in consciousness, which also is accompanied by a change in behavior. And it would be interesting to find out the answer to the second question of how many people after 10 years of coming to Krishna consciousness are still following the practices and the principles. Of course, we do not have an answer to that question. There is no research out there done by anybody that will give us an answer to that question. But I do think we can say that it would be nice if it was more. We certainly meet a goodly number of people. Again, we have no idea what the percentage is, but we meet a lot of people who start practicing Krishna consciousness and then don't continue it or never really become serious. Uh, if you think of all the people that we contact in the world, all the people to whom we give books, am I going slowly enough for you to translate? 
all the people for whom we give books, all the people to whom we give prasadam, all the people who come to our classes, etc. If all of those people were to seriously take up Krishna consciousness, there would be a lot more people seriously taking up Krishna consciousness. And how many times does this happen? Again, I don't think we can give a specific number, but you can think about for yourself. How many times do you go to a class, and a few hours later, you're doing the opposite? I hear this quite a lot, that people will say, yes, when I'm in the class, I feel very enlivened and, and very enthusiastic, and I have my plan, and then I go, and a few hours later... Uh, it's all gone. I can't even remember what the class was, what to speak of, practice it. So this is our problem. This is our problem that many times the way that we present Krishna consciousness is mostly for information. Okay, you're going to know the philosophy. (laughs) This is a philosophical class, and you will know the philosophy so that you can write the philosophy on an exam or tell somebody else. So I I know myself personally, uh, the first time that I visited a Hare Krishna temple, I was 14 years old. I went with a friend. And there was one lady at the temple. By the way, those of you who are coming in late, this is a class for teaching. Okay, it's a practical teaching class. It's not a Shastra or Leela class. If you sort of wandered in and you didn't know what you wandered into and you expected a Shastra class or a Leela class, uh, that's not happening right now. Right. So anyway, I first came at 14. I came with a friend. And we spoke to one devotee who explained wonderful philosophy. And when we left the temple, I turned to my friend and said, I agree with everything she said, but I couldn't repeat any of it. (laughs) And I certainly didn't practice any of it. We came one more time, and I spoke to somebody else. I asked the other person, what do I do to be a devotee? How do I practice Krishna consciousness? And the only answer I got is, we have no more room in the temple ashram. You'll have to get your own apartment. And that was it. I wasn't really told anything else. And the consequence of that was that I really didn't do anything to practice Krishna consciousness for several years. And if people said to me, you know, what do you believe? I'd say, I believe Hare Krishna. They said, do you do anything? I said, no. (laughs) I didn't even know what to do. I didn't even have any kind of guideline as to what to do. I do remember... Someone said, only to eat food cooked by devotees, and that didn't make any sense to me. How was I going to go home to my parents' house? I was 14, you know, and only eat food cooked by devotees. I didn't, I couldn't figure that out. You know, the temple was a good hour, hour and a half by bus and train from where I lived. So it's just slightly, slightly difficult to go to the temple every day for my meals. And there was no Govinda's restaurant anywhere at that time. So this, is, this often happens that people we had uh, many years ago, I'm trying to think if it was in the 70s or the 80s, there was a survey done by Gallup. I don't know if you're familiar, a very prestigious surveying uh, organization in America. And 500,000, half a million teenagers wrote in their religion as Hare Krishna. So teenagers were asked, millions of teenagers in America were asked, 
what religion do you belong to? And they could choose, you know, Catholic, this, this, this. And they, Hare Krishna wasn't a choice. So they wrote it in, Hare Krishna, 500,000 teenagers. And, you know, I remember when we read this, we said, where are they? <laughs> we don't see them. <laughs> what are they doing? What are they practicing? So it, it's quite common that people come to Krishna consciousness, we, we, we interrelate with them in some way, and they're not applying it. They're not applying it. And this even happens, we have to say, with our very serious devotees. We often find very serious devotees who are struggling to apply different aspects of Krishna consciousness. How do I do this? How do I chant attentively? How do I get along with my husband who's driving me crazy, my wife who's driving me crazy, my boss who's driving me crazy, whatever is driving them crazy in their life? And how do I deal with that? How do I apply Krishna consciousness to my life? And often they don't know. Am I correct that this is a problem? Am I the only one who sees this problem, or do you also see this problem? Yes? Okay. So especially with the newcomers, how to give them something practical. Um, and absolutely. Who do you think has to have it practical first, though? Yeah. Yeah. Are we very good at that? Yeah, we're not so good at that. Again, I don't have any numbers to give you, but we're not, we're not so good at that. People are always asking, you know, how do I do it? Okay, it's great, but how do I do it? How do I chant good quality rounds and take good care of my deities and have a job and take care of two kids? You know, what do I do if 10, 15 years go by and I'm still under the modes of nature? You know, and I have these material desires that I haven't fulfilled and they haven't gone away and I don't know what to do with them. And we say, okay, let, let's look at the 11th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And <laughs> That's interesting, all the soldiers rushing into Krishna's mouths. But what do I do about my problem? How do I put this into practice? All right. These maxims are going to be our principles, our truths, upon which our practice will be based, our teaching practice. So before we come up with methods of how to teach so that people can use them, we're going to come up with certain truths. So this is going to be our first truth, that the main reason that we give information is for people to use the information. Now, that might sound like, well, duh, or mila, we all know that. But, you know, I don't think we do. I really don't think we do. I cannot count how many classes I've been to where people simply transmitted information without a clue as to what I was supposed to do with it. No indication at all. 
lists of Sanskrit terms and sometimes very fancy PowerPoints and handouts. And, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Okay, there's Shubhadan, there's Kleshagni, and I can put it on the chart, and I can fill out my nectar devotion exam, and I can pass the exam, and I can get a certificate to put up on my wall. And I still yell at my kids. And I still look in the mirror and think, that's me. And it just doesn't get any better. Oh, but I know lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of information. I can tell you who Abhimanyu is and the whole story of all the dynasties and the battle of Kurukshetra and all of Krishna's incarnations and what their different names are and maybe even all the different Vishnu forms in Vaikuntha and what hand is holding the chakra for each form. So, seriously, this... Well, we... I'm an editor for Back to Godhead, which I've been since 1990. And... We have several recurring problems in people's submission of articles. By the way, anyone who wants a copy of this PowerPoint can get one, so you don't need to be frantically transcribing what's on the screen. Um, just, just email me, and I will immediately, well, probably immediately, but <laughs> very soon <laughs> send you a copy of the PowerPoint. And I can send you an outline of the whole book if you like, as I said. Okay, so many people don't seem to feel this way at all. And we see in our Back to Godhead submission articles that often, 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 we wonder, why are you writing this article? So, yes, what's the point? Somebody will write an article, we had a wonderful Rathiatra in Smuckety-Muckety-Bill in Smuckety-Muckety Town, and Krishna Das gave 100,000 whatever their currency is, and Krishna Das, he cooked for 10 hours, and it was a great festival. So what? Why do I need this information, please, and what am I supposed to do with it? I don't know this Krishna Das and Krishna Dasi, and I've never been to Smuckety-Muckety-Bill, and... So there's a Rathiatra going on there. Very nice. Thank you very much. And we get these kind of articles all the time. Or some complex philosophical and intellectual article about the modes of material nature. And you read it and you say, okay, now I understand something about the modes. And what am I supposed to do with this information? What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with the fact that my stomach is hurting and my boss doesn't like me and I don't have enough money in the bank and when I sit down to chant, I think about my dog. What does it have to do with me? And there is just silence in the article. So this is probably 70, 80% of the articles we get submitted to Back to Godhead have nothing, not a word, not even an attempt to connect the article to something that the devotee or the reader, would do or would use. And again, I hear this over and over again in classes. Theory, theory, theory. So to think that the teaching of spiritual information is meant to be used by people can be quite a novel idea. And if you can just accept that, if that's the only thing that you get from this presentation, I will be completely, as we say, it is gone ecstatic. That doesn't mean I'll start crying and shaking, but... 
and doesn't mean I'll start exhibiting sattvika bhavs. Although that wouldn't be bad. But anyway, uh, the point is, if you could just get that one one idea, that that's why I'm teaching. It's why I'm writing. It's why I'm speaking. It's why I'm counseling. It's why I'm interacting with people and telling them about Krishna is so they can use it in some way, so it can change them in some way. Now, this also, also this one is really uh, radical. It seems just completely radical that it's my responsibility. Okay, okay, we accept the first one. My purpose for teaching is for the students to apply it, but that's their business. But why is that my business? I'm telling you about the modes of nature. You decide what you're going to do with it. It's not my business. So that that's another often mentality of the teacher. Yes, yes, people should apply it. But how they should apply it, where they should apply it, that's not my concern. Now, of course, if you're the student, then you might say, okay, it's always my responsibility to apply what I learn, even if the teacher doesn't help me to do that. So many years ago, I read an article in our Sankirtan newsletter by one sannyasi, and he said, whenever we listen to a class, we should always be thinking, how does this apply to me? What can I do with it? And I said, yes, I'm going to do that. And so I went to the next morning Bhagavatam class, and the person giving the class was the temple commander. And the whole time of the class, the temple commander talked about how if you want to advance in Krishna consciousness, you should obey your authority in the temple. (laughs) Which was interesting in and of itself. But at that time, uh, being in the Grihastha ashram with one child and another on the way, I really was not under the authority of the temple commander for practically anything. And so I'm sitting in the class thinking, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? And I thought, okay, this sannyasi gave this advice, but I'm not going to be able to follow it because this class has nothing to do with me. And then I thought, well, let me really try. You know, let, me, let me really make an effort to follow this. So I'm sitting in the class thinking, okay, Krishna, show me somehow that this has something to do with me. How can I apply this? How can I apply this? I was really praying. And then all of a sudden, you know how that works with Supersoul? Supersoul said, your husband is your immediate authority. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, was, it became a life-transforming event for me that from that point on, I thought of my husband as my temple commander. And it was, it was very helpful many times to have that mentality. But I had to work really hard as, as somebody sitting in the class to come to that realization. The person giving the class didn't help me at all, and it was only in the last five minutes of the class that I made that kind of leap by intense prayer. So do we really want all of the students in our classes to be going, oh, Krishna, please, 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 please tell me what I can do with this class. Please, please, please show me some way that this class has something to do with me. Is that what we want our students to be doing? Okay, okay, this class has nothing to do with me. I can't make anything out of it. Please help me something, something. Please, Krishna, please. Is that what you want your students to be doing, my dear friends? Okay, who should be doing that? The teacher. And when should the teacher be doing that? Before the class. How radical. Before the class, it's the teacher who should be praying. I mean, your students should be praying too. But the teacher should be praying. 
Krishna, please. Show me how I can take this topic that I'm teaching, this verse that I'm teaching, and make it real. Make it something that the students can use now. I always remember, unfortunately I don't remember where it was, but I always remember being somewhere as I change locations very fast. It's often hard for me to remember where I am. But anyway, I was somewhere. And a person asked me about studying the Bhagavatam. Uh, one of the people in the class asked me about studying the Bhagavatam. And are we just studying so we can apply after the class? And I said, no. Because when we're studying Shastra, that studying Shastra is bhakti. We're not studying Shastra to get information so we can then engage in bhakti after the class. The very instruction itself is bhakti. That that transmission. So therefore the application should be happening now. Yes, we want the students to go out after the class. Like, I want all of you to go out after this class and use these principles in your teaching. Which you obviously can't do right now because you're quiet and I'm talking. So, yes. But you can. You can apply them to some extent right now. Even though you're in the role of student. How is that? You can start changing your consciousness now. Does that make sense to everybody? So when you're teaching for application, we're not just talking about application that happens an hour or a day or a week or a month later. We're talking about application that is happening at the moment, at the moment, at the moment that you are teaching. I mean, as we like to say in the Hare Krishna movement, you never know how long you're going to live. Suppose one of your students were to drop dead in the middle of your class. Would your class have been beneficial for them or not? (laughs) You know, I was a teacher of children for 27 years. And that was something I thought about a lot. And the reason I thought about it a lot is that one of my students died when she was three. On Prabhupada's Piaspu today, in fact. So it was very real for me that any of the kids I was teaching, that could be the last day that I was teaching them. And if I was teaching them only for the future, if everything I was teaching them only had application for when they were going to be 15 or 20 or 25 or 40 years old, maybe they would never be 25 years old. And was I teaching them for something that they could apply now? And I, I think uh, Radha Govindadasi's death really, really pushed me in that direction as a, as a permanent thing that anyone I'm interacting with at any moment, in any capacity, whether it's sitting here on a chair or wherever I am, that there should be some benefit that's happening now, some application happening now, and the responsibility for that is mine. All right. So ideally, ideally, Dr. Wilkinson said, 45 to 70% of anything you present should be focused on application. There has to be some information. There has to be some information. But you don't want to have your classes, you know, 90% information and 10% application. You you want to have at least 45 to 70% of your presentation should be focused on application. That is sometimes hard. 
especially when you're trying to transmit a lot of information in a short amount of time. And if you are trying to transmit a lot of information in a short amount of time, then you probably should review your syllabus. Because when you try to teach a lot of information in a short amount of time, one generally ends up teaching somewhere close to nothing. Because people just can't absorb. Maybe they could have done it 10,000 years ago. I don't know. I don't remember my lifetime from 10,000 years ago. But at least at the present time, it's hard for people to remember three points. Have you noticed that? You notice that? If you make just like three points in a class and you say afterwards, and you've repeated those three points, you know, ten times in the class, with numerous illustrations and examples and applications. And if you ask people after the class, what were my main three points? They won't all get it. So if you're trying to make 20 points or 30 points or 50 points or 100 points, I mean, I had, I'm not going to be too specific about this, but I had um, some group in the Hare Krishna movement, we won't say which group, but I had some group in the Hare Krishna movement asked me to make a presentation to their group about a principle of management. And it was, it was a very difficult principle. It was a principle with which I was not that familiar, although my um, PhD is in management. So I spent about four months researching it and, and really, really doing in-depth research and talking with some of the leading experts in the world and reading up the books. I mean, I really dived into it and submerged uh, myself in it. And then I calculated how long it would take to give a basic overview of what I was asked to do. And I realized it would take a minimum of three hours because they were asking me to teach not only information but a skill. So I thought, okay, it's going to be an hour to get people convinced that we should do it because it was a radically new, new concept for the people I would be teaching. Then an hour to teach them how to do it and another hour to practice. And then I spent about 100 hours putting together the presentation, uh, at which time they told me, oh, we've changed our mind. We don't want you to teach it. Uh, yeah, that was interesting. And uh, they said, but we can have somebody else teach it. Okay, that was also interesting. Why don't you give them all of your stuff? So I did give them all of my stuff, and the person who taught it tried to teach it in an hour. And I said, you can't teach it in an hour. It's not teachable in an hour. Hare Krishna. Of course, the result was that nobody followed up on it. So if you're trying to squeeze too much into a short amount of time, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, if they told me from the beginning, we only have an hour to teach this, I would have said that is impossible. Forget it. It simply can't be taught in an hour. Right? If someone says, you know, teach me how to ride a bicycle in two minutes, you're going to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. So if you're trying to put so much information into a presentation that you don't have any time for the application, change your syllabus. Better one thing that people understand well than a hundred things they don't understand at all or a hundred things they can't do anything with. And this, this is really, really hard for some people to accept also. Really, really hard for some teachers to. But I've got to tell them everything. No, you don't. You really don't. And... One thing that I've come to have faith in as a teacher is that everything that everybody needs to know, Krishna will tell them with or without me. So if I'm not the one to tell them and they need it, that Krishna is a very smart person, much smarter than me, 
like sort of infinitely more smarter than me and very capable and he has many, 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 many servants and many, 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 many ways of communicating. And therefore, if I fail to communicate something in a particular time, he'll take care of it. I mean, he says that, yoga shame of aham yaham. And I have come to assume that that is a fact. So better to take one thing or two things and teach them well than to try to take a hundred things and not teach them. So these are our first three maxims. And then we go on to our next one. Now this, we, can, we have a whole other separate presentation on this, which I might have given today. That was the choice to give this one or that one, and I chose to give this one. Aha, maybe another time I can give that one. Application focuses on meeting people's needs. So we're just going to describe this very briefly, because as I say, we have a whole other presentation on this. So in other words, when I'm teaching people to use spiritual knowledge, I'm teaching people to use it to solve whose problems? Their problems, again, a very radical idea. I often go to communities where I will ask the leaders of the communities, especially if I haven't been there before, what are the needs in your community that should be addressed? And almost all the time, they tell me their needs, not the community's needs. They say, well, we need more people to address the deities. We need more people to come to Mongol Arctic. We need more people to go on book distribution. I said, that wasn't my question. My question is, what do your people wake up in the morning worried about? What are their needs? What are their concerns? They're probably worried about some relationship in their life. Almost everybody is worried about some relationship or the lack of a relationship. (laughs) Either a relationship they would like to have that they don't have or a relationship they already have that they'd like to not have or a relationship that they have and they want to keep but they need to fix it. So pretty much everybody has at least someone in that category. And believe me, they're worried about that a lot more than they're worried about, oh, the deities don't have enough pujaris. Most people worry about money. Do I have enough money? Am I going to have enough money? Will I keep my job? Most people who are interested in Krishna consciousness worry about whether or not they're going to ever advance in Krishna consciousness. Are they ever going to become a pure devotee? Are they ever going to reach perfection? How long is it going to take? How many lifetimes? What more do they have to do to attain it? People worry about how they're going to balance their life and take care of all the different parts of their life, their family and their work and their physical health and their spiritual life. I mean, those are the things people are worried about. So when you're talking about application, it should be application for people's needs. Now, I'm assuming here in this class, which may be an erroneous assumption, maybe some of you just came because I'm entertaining, I don't know. But I'm assuming in this class that all of you teach And that you're here because you have a need to be better teachers. That you're here because as teachers, you sometimes feel frustrated. Oh my God, I'm spending 10 hours, 15 hours, 20 hours preparing for my classes and I just pour my heart into them and, you know, I just don't see what I want to see from my students. I don't see the kind of follow-up. I don't see the kind of commitment. I don't see the kind of understanding. And I'm just, wow, I wish I could be a better teacher. I wish I could reach people more. So I'm assuming that that's the need that's brought you to this class. Now, I can assume that because the class was, I hope, yes, advertised, yes, was properly, I hope. 
Yes? Sometimes you don't know, you know, how people advertise your classes. <laughs> so you don't quite know what people show up for. But when it's not advertised very specifically like that, then you're really at a problem. If you just have a morning Shastra class or a Bhagavad Gita class, like we had a class in, how did you say? Kran? Kran? Kran. We had a class in Kran on Bhagavad Gita 12.5. And that's all they know it's going to be on Bhagavad Gita 12.5. You know, so people are coming into the class without any idea of which of their needs that class might meet. They're kind of hoping, like a lottery or something, you know. They're kind of hoping that they get lucky and that the class addresses something that they really care about. Okay, got that? So you want to have your application. It's got to be connected. Well, it doesn't have to be. But otherwise, how will people apply it? If I'm telling you how to apply something that you don't care about, That's not going to be something that you'll apply. And we see that also. We see that when people make an attempt for application, they talk about applying something that matters to them, but not necessarily something that matters to their audience. Now, when it comes to dealing with people who are already devotees, if your students are already devotees, if they're not already devotees, this would not apply. But if they're already devotees, people are much more likely to apply what you're teaching if they see that it's based in Shastra. At least I hope that's true. I, I hope that's true. That's not always true. And, and one, of the, one of my sorrows in the Hare Krishna movement is people teaching things without basis in Shastra. People are more likely to apply what you're teaching if you're teaching something that you've applied and that's made a difference in your life. So if you're teaching something theoretically, it doesn't usually have any impact. In fact, my dear friends, we should never teach anything that's purely theoretical to us. If it's something that's completely theoretical to us, get someone else to teach it, please. Please. So there's a story that Prabhupada tells in the Chaitanya Charitamrita of Sankaracharya and Sankaracharya was in a debate with a king and his queen. And in those days, debate was very serious. Today, debate isn't very serious. When people debate today, nobody knows who won and who lost. People don't know what the rules are. And the, people who, the person who lost, the person who won, there's no consequence. In those days, when there was a debate, whoever lost had to become the disciple of whoever won. It was very serious business. It was a high-stakes game. This, by the way, was one of the ways in which the Brahmins maintained truth in society. Now, if you were going to become a disciple of Sankaracharya, that was really serious business because what would you have to do as a disciple of Sankaracharya? If you become Sankaracharya's disciple, you have to also become a... Well, yes, definitely but you have to become a sannyasi. That's pretty heavy. Would you have a philosophical debate with somebody where the consequence was that if you lost the debate, you'd have to become a sannyasi? Like, right then? So there was this king. King and his queen. They were debating with Sankaracharya. And the queen was the judge, which also fascinates me, breaks some of our stereotypes about women. So not only was the queen competent to be the judge in a Shastra debate, 
but she was considered so unbiased that she could judge a debate between Sankaracharya and her husband, which, if her husband lost, which would result in her husband taking sannyas. And she said, at the end of that debate, my husband has lost. She said, but I'm half of his body, and it doesn't matter if he's lost. You have to defeat me also. So the rules of the debate was that they could debate anything from any part of the Shastra. And as you may know, the Vedic Shastra deals with all aspects of human society. So she says, I want to debate the part of the Shastra that deals with, as Srila Prabhupada puts it in his purport, the erotic principles. In other words, there's part of the Shastra that deals with sex. So Sankaracharya had taken sannyas when he was, how old does anyone know? Eight. Pretty close. Eight. So did he know anything about erotic principles? No. And so he said to the queen, I'm sorry, I cannot debate that. Now, if that's all he said, he would have lost the debate, which would have been pretty consequential for Sankaracharya because then he would have had to become the disciple of the king and the queen. So that would be pretty major. So he said, I I need some time. I'll be back. So then, as Prabhupada describes, he went to some cave or something. He had a disciple guard his body, and by mystic yoga, he left his body. He entered into the body of a king who was on his deathbed. And he lived in the body of that king for one month, during which time, Prabhupada writes, he experienced the erotic principles. Then, after a month, he left the body of that king. So the people saw that the king was about to die and then came back to life and then died again a month later. That's how they perceived it. Then he left the body of that king, re-entered his original body, and came back and said, okay, now I'm ready to debate. By the way, he did win the debate. And uh, Prabhupada said both the the king and the queen gave up material life. Uh, When I did some research into it, what does that mean? Did they die you know, uh, it seems that both that the king took sannyas and the queen also became a renunciate and started her own Mayavadi ashram. Uh, but the point here is that Sankaracharya did not discuss something that had no personal effect on his own life. He did not try to debate or discuss something about which he had no experience. And unless and until he could get that experience, he was not going to debate it. So you cannot ask people to apply something that you have not applied yourself. So if in the Hare Krishna movement you have always lived in an ashram and you've never had a job, please don't tell people how to balance job with being a devotee. Just just please stop it, please, because you don't know what you're talking about. So just don't do it. You know, and if you live outside as a family person, don't tell people what it's like to live for 25 or 30 years in a temple ashram because you don't know what you're talking about. So just don't do it, please. So... If you think I'm a little annoyed, I am a little annoyed. Because I see that when people try to teach application that they have no experience with, they really mess people up. They really mess people They give all kinds of strange advice. Yeah, and you're just thinking, huh? <laughs> so out in academia, in the university, we say that one should always... Take advice from people who have the lived reality. So if you're going to teach someone how to apply a certain aspect of Krishna consciousness, you should have the lived reality. And if you don't, please, please get someone else to teach it. 
I, I find this what I call practical humility. You know, there's one kind of humility. I'm so low and I'm so fallen. And I'm not a pure devotee. That kind of humility. And then there's practical humility that says, I don't know anything about this. Somebody else should do it. Okay. Um, and then the idea of application is to get people to obey Krishna, to actually use, not just to study. All right. Do we have any question here on the theory? The principles. Anybody debate any of these truths? Yes. Hare Krishna. You mentioned that it's responsibility of the teacher. Yes. Yes. Oh, very good. That's very good. You're right. What I told you wasn't true. It wasn't. Thank you. So suppose none of you were teachers. Suppose you were all students. Who would I say had the responsibility? Suppose you were all students. You didn't teach anything. Who would I say had the responsibility to figure out how to apply Krishna consciousness? The student. If you were just students, I'd say it's your responsibility. Even if the teacher is terrible, even if the teacher is not prepared, even if the teacher never makes a bridge between what they're teaching and application. That's what that sannyasi wrote in that newsletter, right? He said it's your responsibility to apply it. So the student should think who has 100% responsibility for the student. If you're the student, who should you think has 100% of the responsibility? Yourself. Is that true? No. And if you're the teacher, who should you think has 100% of the responsibility? The teacher. Some of you are sleeping or you don't understand English or I'm really boring. If you're the teacher, who do you think has 100% of the responsibility? That's a little better. Is that true? Is that true? No. So why think like that? Just like they say in a marriage, it's not that both people give 50%. Both people give 100%. I gave my 50%. Where's yours? I mean, that's not how you have a relationship with somebody. All right, guys. I'm only going to half teach you how to apply this. You got to figure out the other half. Is that what you want to do as teachers? So no, it's not true. Everybody has 100% responsibility. And if everybody has 100% responsibility, that includes me. So as a teacher, I have 100% of the responsibility to teach so you can apply. And as a student, you have 100% of the responsibility to figure out how to apply what I'm teaching. Is that okay? But if I, as the teacher, think it's all your responsibility. You know, I, I hear this from married couples all the time. Yes, we're not getting along. And it's all his fault, right? Well, all right, all right. I, I probably have 10% of the fault. 
And the only reason I have 10% of the fault is because he's acting like that. Because he's acting like that, therefore, I'm acting badly. So even my 10% is his fault. I hear that all the time. Ultimately, whose fault do we think all of our problems are? Who do we blame for all of our problems? Oh, come on. Who's the person we blame for? Krishna, thank you. So yes, all of us conditioned souls, we are blaming God ultimately for all of our problems. Even if it's the government, well, it's why doesn't Krishna come in, you know, on Kalki and kill the government? If it's my terrible wife, well, why did Krishna let me marry this crazy lady? You know, it's his fault. He should have given me Matasma Jirgana He should have given me the intelligence not to marry this person. So ultimately it's Krishna's fault. All right, yes. And does Krishna take all the responsibility to bring us back home back to Godhead? Yes, he does. But do we have to take all the responsibility? Yes, we do. And does the guru take all the responsibility? Very good. Does that answer your question? You're not sure. Need time to think about it. All right, well, this is sort of kind of the essential thing here. Sort of kind of the essential thing. Because, my dear friends, teaching for application will take some effort. And if you haven't already doing it, been doing it, it's going to be hard at first. It will get very easy, like anything else, that once you become, once you're used to doing it, it'll just become natural. You, you won't even be able to teach without it being for application. It just won't, won't even happen. But in the beginning, it will be hard. And if it's not your responsibility, you know what? You're not going to do it. Oh, I can't do it. This is too hard. This one's way too hard. And there's nothing here for anybody to apply. But I have to teach it anyway. All right, I'll just give information. And sometimes it's really hard. I mean, certain things you look at and you go, there's nothing here for anybody to apply. Nothing at all for anyone to apply. So forget it. Yeah. I'm just going to I was asked to teach it. I'm just going to go and teach it. And the students can figure it out because ultimately... The student and the teacher both have to be responsible. So in this, you know, I've been responsible all these, this time, it's their problem. <laughs> yes? Yes, although in America, gymnasiums are where you get exercise. Okay, sorry. That's okay. Where you play basketball in America to so the different where our best okay. So, um, maybe just a question. Do you have experience in these schools outside of Krishna that they gave you knowledge directly and occasionally? Very rarely. Very Mostly it was just a bunch of information that you had to figure out how to apply. Very rarely. I, I had some excellent teachers. You know, some really excellent teachers uh, in primary school, in secondary school, and uh, particularly in graduate school, I had some excellent, excellent teachers. I had a professor in, 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 in the doctoral program that was just pure application, genius, absolute genius of a teacher. So I had a few. 
But sad to say, most were not like that. Most didn't know why they were teaching what they were teaching. You know, they had no idea why they were teaching it. I mean, sometimes, when, I, when I've taught this to academic teachers, I, I will often get something from the teachers of, there's no use of what I'm teaching. Often. You know, I'll go in our Hare Krishna movement, because that's mostly where I teach, and I'll go into schools and I'll, I'll teach this to the teachers, and they'll, they'll say, I don't know why I'm teaching this. It has no application at all. then why should the student learn it <laughs> is another interesting question. So for myself as, as a teacher of children, I really, I, I, I took this as a, as a vrat. That every single word, every single sentence, every single thing that those students did had to have application now and in the future, or I wasn't going to teach it. Now, I couldn't always explain everything to the students if they're only six years old, but at least I had to know what the use of it was. And if it didn't have any point, we weren't learning it. And that was it. And everything that we learned was going to be for application. Sometimes that was hard. Sometimes it was really, really hard. I mean, just as a very simple example is, say, the terms of grammar. So when you're in school, you spend... I assume you do this here too. You learn the words that apply to grammatical terms. So this is a noun and this is a verb and this is an adverbial phrase and an adjective phrase and this is a gerund clause and this is a participial clause and this is a you know independent clause and this is a depending this is an independent clause with, that starts with a participle where it has the proper antecedent in the subject of the dependent clause. And you know you learn to do that stuff. And it's very hard to think of how you're applying it because you never, ever in your life hear any adult speaking like this. Like, ever. Never. Your parents don't talk like this. The people on the bus don't talk like this. You never sit down on the bus and go to work and someone say, hey, look at that cool adverbial clause and the dependent phrase of the sentence. And the other says, well, that's not really so cool because the subject and the verb, look, look, they don't agree in number. Well, yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's intense that they don't agree. You never hear anybody talk like that. You know, never. And so the, the poor kid is going to school thinking, why in the world am I learning this stuff? No one talks like that on TV or in the movies or on the school bus or in the lunchroom. None of the parents talk like that. None of the relatives. Nobody ever, ever, ever talks like that. And so then I had to sit down and think, why am I teaching this? And you put a lot of energy and effort into teaching it and testing. I mean, a lot. It's not just a little bit. And you teach it over like 10 or 12 years. And then I figured out why. Because it's really, really hard to say to somebody, okay, you know this word over here that sort of tells you what's, you know, who's doing something in the sentence. And then there's another word over here that tells them what they're doing. See this word? And, well, this is talking about one, and this is talking about three, and so it doesn't go together. And it's a lot easier to say the subject and the verb don't match in number. Oh. And why do we care that the subject and the verb match in number? Because we want to be understood. What are children's, what are their biggest needs? Looking here at need. One of our, the children's biggest need is to have people understand them. It's one of the most frustrating things for a child. 
their parents, their teachers, their siblings don't understand them and don't care what they say. So there's rules. It's like in a game. You know, you want to win the game, you have to know the rules. So if you want to win the game of communication, you have to know the rules. It's quite simple. And people who never learn grammar don't communicate very well. Often you haven't the foggiest notion of what they're trying to say. Or you misunderstand them. They're trying to say this and you hear this. It happens all the time. So therefore one learns the rules of the game. And yes, if you've really learned the rules of the game, you then forget them. Because they become integrated. You no longer consciously, where you don't talk about the rules of the game. You just automatically know how to play them. Oh, that's why I'm teaching participial phrases, adverbial clauses, dangling participles. You can't have an idea as an antecedent for a pronoun. That's why I'm teaching that. Do you think my understanding why I was teaching it made a difference to my students? What do you think? I hope so. I remember one of my students telling me, he was 20-something, he said, Mother Ermela, everything you taught me in school I've used in my life. I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. Now, of course, some things we have to teach in schools uh, just because we have to teach them because there's some government syllabus or something like that, and the government's teaching useless things for Lord knows what reason, some old reason that's no longer applicable. And so sometimes you have, this particularly at a secondary level, sometimes you have to say to the kids, look, I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry that you're learning the Latin names for all the parts of the root system of a dahlia flower. <laughs> I had that on an undergraduate exam. I'm really sorry that I'm asking you to memorize this because you will never once use it in your life ever unless you become a botanist who deals with dahlia flowers. So, I'm sorry. But it's required for the exam, which is required to go to college, and you're required to go to college so that you have more choices in your life about what work you do. And therefore, that's the application of it. And sorry, please forgive me. Any other questions on the principles before we go on to how to do this? Yes. I think I already gave you my opinion on that. Anybody else? Anything else on theory? Okay. Are you ready to go into how to do it? Yes. Very good. I can just tell you the principle. You can apply it to instances as you like. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that stupid. I'm pretty stupid, but I'm not that stupid. Okay. So, what is our general method? How to do this? How to teach for application? So, step one is what knowledge are we trying to teach? What is the knowledge that I'm trying to teach? That's the first thing you've got to figure out. What, what knowledge are you trying to teach? Okay, that's pretty simple. Step two. Now, if the only thing that you got out of the theory part was that we are responsible for teaching and teaching this for application, I'm very happy. If the only thing you get out of the practice part is you have to find just one principle, I'll also be very happy. 
So out of the theory part, the most important thing is it's our responsibility to teach for application. And the most important part out of the practice part is whenever you teach anything in any one particular class, there should be one principle, uh, one principle. And there should just be one principle, and, and only one, and there should just be one, and, and not two, and not three. And there should be only one. And, and by the way, there should only be one principle in every class. How many principles? One. Okay. Only one. A principle is a truth, a universal truth. A universal truth. My one universal truth in this class is knowledge is for using. Every class should have one universal truth and only one, only one, only one, only one, only one, and not more than one, and not two, and not three, and not five, and not six, and only one for every class, and only one. And if you're tempted to have more than one, only one. Now, you can have other principles that are subcategories and sub-subcategories, but one principle per class. You can teach a gazillion truths, but they should all be centered around one principle per class. One principle. So one universal truth. Now, my personal experience is that every single verse in the Shastra has at least 20 Probably 200 principles. Now, if you're picking your own theme, you choose your own principle. But that's what you choose. You choose a principle. Yes, you have information. Yes, you talk about what is the information, what is the knowledge. But mostly you're choosing a principle, a truth. A principle should be stated as back to grammar, a declarative sentence, a complete sentence. A principle is not a title. It is not a title like fun with Krishna or modes of nature. That's not a principle. A principle is not a question. A principle is a statement that's a complete thought. If we understand the modes of material nature, we'll be better able to distinguish reality from illusion. That is a principle. Reality from illusion is not a principle. Modes of material nature is not a principle. How can you distinguish reality from illusion is not a principle. A principle is a statement. It's a complete thought that does not end in a question. It's not a title. It's not a question. And it's something that applies to everybody always. It's a statement of universal truth. You are thus finding the essence of what you are teaching in each class. Does this take time and effort? Yes. Does it take less time and effort the more you practice it? Definitely. Even if you are very practiced, does it sometimes take a lot of time and effort? Yes. Sometimes I look at what I'm going to teach and I can't figure out what principle I want to choose and I just let it sit for a few hours and go do something else and then come back to it. 
Sometimes I'll sit down and make a list of 10 or 20 principles and then pick the one I want. And then sometimes as I'm picking the one I want and starting to develop it, I decide, actually, I want a different one. Prayer is a really nice idea. Krishna, what's the principle in this class? What's the principle in this verse? What's the one principle? And only one. Oh, but there's so many. Krishna will teach that another time. Make sure it's in line with the Siddhanta. Also, you should pick the principle that's going to be most relevant to the needs of your audience. All right, step three. You're going to personalize the principle. Here's a universal truth. Knowing about the three modes of material nature will help you to distinguish reality from illusion. Great. Wonderful. And what about the problem fighting with my boss? And what about my lack of money in the bank? And what about, what about, what about, what about? So then it has to be, how is it true for me? How is it true for me? Not just those who... First, you want to show the principles true for everybody. You want people to be convinced. Wow, that's really true. Wow, that's really true. Wow, that's really true. Oh, wow, that's really true for me. Wow, that's really true for me. If I could understand about the three modes of material nature, I'd be better equipped to distinguish reality from illusion. And if I could be better equipped to distinguish reality from illusion, then I would pick what was true. And if I could pick what was true, I would be happy. The reason I'm not happy is I'm picking things that are false. I want to pick things that are true. And Wow, if I knew about the modes of material nature, I'd have a tool to do that. It would be true for me. Next step. Convince people to do something. Ask them to do something. Okay, now I'm convinced. Now I'm convinced. I'm convinced that if I knew about the modes, if I, 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 Ormila, me, 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 if I knew more about the modes of material nature, I could make better choices in my life. I'd make choices that ended up, were more likely to end up with results that I was happy with. Wow. What do I do? Where do I start? What can I do right now, sitting in this class? What can I do right after I leave this class? What can I do in the next week? So the next step is ask your audience to do something. Now, this next one is only applicable sometimes. This next one is only applicable sometimes. If you are teaching a series of classes with the same people, then you can ask them to come back and report to you on what they did. You can give them homework, or as I like to call it, home fun. So this is not very possible in some situations. It's like when I went to Kran, 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 Kran. Do you say the J, the J of Kran, Kran, Kran? When I went there, 
So I'm not going back there again, at least not on this trip. So if I said to everybody, okay, here's something to do, and I couldn't check on them. Now, I could say, get a buddy, get a partner, make a commitment with a partner, and follow up with your partner. So you could do things like that. I find it awkward to do things like that if I'm not going to be there. But if you're going to be there, if you're going to be there the next week or the next day, you can certainly ask people to come back and, and report. Or they can be reporting to someone else. So this is, this is accountability. Again, unfortunately, you can't do this all the time. So some suggestions here. Ask Krishna to help you with this. I'm a real believer in asking Krishna to help you with just about anything. And again, think of an application that will relate to your students' needs. And no, I will not teach the law of need right now. Sorry, my slide is lying. So you want to have an application that relates to people's needs. So ask Krishna. Ask Krishna. What, what's going to be my principle for application that's really going to help meet the needs of my audience, the real, the real needs of my audience? That's what it means to be a servant, doesn't it? Isn't it? Isn't that what it means to be a servant? I mean, we always say that. I'm your servant. Your servant. Your servant. Your servant. Your servant. Your servant. Please accept my humble obeisances. Your servant. Your servant. That's what it means. <laughs> it means that I help people find to see how Krishna consciousness works. For them, in their life, for their questions, as as individuals. So you want to plan the whole lesson around the application. The principle, your one principle, and how they're going to apply that principle. That's your hub. And everything should fit around that. It's not something tacked on at the end. Do you have that toy in this country where there's a box and you turn a thing and then something pops out of the box? Do you have that, that child's toy? You don't have that? Oh, you guys are really lost out in life. <laughs> so there's this little thing in a spring. Goodness. We should import them here from America. So there's this little box and there's this toy on a spring and you, you wind it and it makes a noise. And then it goes pop and it jumps out. So a lot of times people preach like that. You know, they're just preaching information, 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 information. And then the last 30 seconds of the class, oh, well, you can use it like this. Pop. So you want everything structured around your application. We're going to be practicing this in a few minutes. Like the hub of a wheel. Give them some specific steps. Too specific. I was once at the class of a very well-meaning devotee who was talking about reading Prabhupada's books, and he said, therefore, everyone should read Chila Prabhupada's books for two hours a day. That's too specific. There's going to be people in your audience who are going to say, there is no way I have time to read Chila Prabhupada's books for two hours a day, and therefore they're going to reject the whole thing. So you don't want to be so specific and so prescriptive that people will just reject it altogether 
And neither do you just want to be really vague. Okay, everybody, let's get more into Prabhupada's books. So somewhere in between. So you can ask people, well, can we make a commitment to increase our quality or quantity of Prabhupada's books? And you can give some suggestions. Say, you know, if you're not reading it all now, maybe you could commit to reading a sentence a day, a paragraph a day, maybe right before breakfast, right before lunch, right before you go to bed. Maybe you could listen to audio books when you're in the car. Maybe you could read with a reading button. Give them some options, something specific that you can give them options for. You follow? So not just one general prescription. Okay, everybody, everyone, you have to read one paragraph before breakfast and one paragraph before lunch and what? You know, people are going to stop telling me what to do. And nor do you just want to be, just get into Prabhupada's books. Too vague. Something where people, I, I, um, I gave a class to the college professors in Budapest uh, a week or so ago. And we were teaching about how to make your classes such that people would be likely to remember them. And we had, which is a little different from applying them. Of course, you can't apply something you can't remember. But anyway, so we had, we had different, you know, steps for things they could do. And one of the professors there had already studied exactly what I was teaching. At the end of my class, I said, if you can't apply all of these in every class, at least try to apply one of them in each class. And she wrote me an email and she said, although I had already studied this, I felt so overwhelmed by the fact that there were seven things I had to do that I never did any of them. And when you said, at least do one of them, I thought, oh, I could do that. Sometimes we'll say to people, you know, see if you could do it tonight before you go to bed or in the next three days or in the next week. And it, it helps if there's something special, you know, okay, well, it's, it's Govardhan Puja three days from now, so... Between now and Govardhan Puja, can you, you know, maybe we could make a determination that this is what I'm going to do. Again, different suggestions, but certain specific suggestions. So you could say to people, you know, for the next week, maybe we could try an experiment. Wake up 10 minutes earlier or, or find a good place to chant. Or, you know, one of these 10 points that we've given you in the class, pick one that you like and use that for your chanting. Do you, you, everybody understand this? Okay. This is very important. Otherwise, you'll, you'll end up actually frustrating people. Because if you get people to the point that, wow, this is true, it's true. I, oh, the modes of material nature, it's true, it's true, it's true. I believe it. Wow, it's changed my life. And it's true for me. Wow, it's true for me. Okay, now I want to go do something. What do I do? I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, I haven't a clue. The person didn't give me one possible idea of what to do. So then I'm even more frustrated. I'm like, now I really want to do it and I don't know how. You know, a lot of the classes you don't even want to do it. You're sitting in the class and you don't even know what you're supposed to want to do at all. You're just like, okay. Sattva and Raja and Thomas and this and that. Okay. Cool. (laughs) You know, that's really bad. But I think I think sometimes it's even worse is when people are like, no, I want to know, I want to know, what do I do? And you don't tell them. So give them at least some idea of what to do. It was, it was like when I went to that woman in the temple and I said, what do I do to practice Krishna consciousness? So just get your own apartment. You know, and I was 14, so it was a little strange. And then some illustration. 
of what to do, illustrate your application, something from Shastra, how did someone else apply it, how was it true for them? Use an appropriate style. All right, accountability. So this is the perform area, which you may not be able to do in any class, in every class. But ask people to be accountable to somebody. You know, who am I, who am I going to report to that I actually get this done? Am I going to have somebody that I talk to that I get this done? Not entirely an appropriate picture, but anyway. It's two gopis. And maybe they're talking about how they're going to serve Krishna better and how they're going to talk about it. All right. Here we have our five easy-to-remember steps that one does. Now, this is assuming that you start with a Shastric verse. If you don't start with a Shastric verse, if you are deciding the theme, then you jump immediately to step two. So you have two circumstances, one in which you're given a verse. Here's Bhagavad Gita 12.5. You are to talk about it to these people at this time. Go and do it. Then you have another situation where you're to teach these people at this time, teach them whatever you want. Yes? And then there's another situation where I'm going to teach whatever I want and I'm going to find my own audience. All right, so then you can really decide. So if you're given a verse to start with, if you're given a verse to start with, then that is step one. If you're not given a verse to step, start out with, then you still go right to step two. So let's say you have a verse, and we're going to practice this in a moment. I hope most of you, I see most of you, have something to write on and something to write with because you will need it. So first you're going to have uh, Shastra, which is how we're going to practice here. And we're going to practice first with Shastra because that's much more difficult. So if, if you're not given something from Shastra, it's, you know, You've, you've made it oh, probably 10 times easier on yourself. Then you're going to isolate one principle. How many principles? One. How many principles? One. It's only 2.30 in the afternoon. You can't be that tired. How many principles? One. Much better. Thank you. So you're going to find one principle from the Shastra, and then you're going to personalize it. How, what does this have to do with us? so that the audience feels it. It should not just be intellectual. They should feel it. Then you're going to ask for some kind of a commitment, and then you're going to evaluate the change. So, of course, this is English, and as probably very few of you are native English speakers, this may not work so well for you. You may need to come up with your own memory device in your own language. But this is a little simple memory device. Passage, principle, personalize, persuade, perform. These are the steps for teaching for application. Can we say them together? Passage, principle, personalize, persuade, perform. Passage, principle, personalize, persuade, perform. Passage, principle, personalize, persuade, perform. Thank you. All right. And as I say, you know, there's always a problem when I teach in English to non-native English speakers that this may, this may not be something that's terribly easy for you to remember and you may need to come up with your own uh, mnemonic which, or your own memory aid uh, for this. And I personally find that way too much of a challenge for me to come up with a memory aid in all of the languages that I have to communicate in. 
All right, now we're going to do some practice. First, we're going to go through a sample, and then you're all going to practice yourselves. Okay, here's the sample. C.C. Majulila, 837, you are the supreme personality of Godhead himself. Therefore, no one can understand your purpose. By your mercy, you are touching me, although this is not sanctioned by the Vedas. Purport. A sannyasi is strictly forbidden to see the vishayis, the materialistic people, but Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, out of his boundless and causeless mercy, could show favor to anyone, regardless of birth and position. So, looking at this, found three principles. As I say, as I'm, I'm personally convinced that every passage from Shastra has at least 20 and probably 200. It's my personal conviction, having taught this many, many times. Here's one. Lord Chaitanya's mercy is not dependent on our material qualifications. You see that's a sentence? It's a full sentence? It's not a question? It's not a title? And it's, is that universally true? Next, another principle. Lord Chaitanya's mercy is above the Vedic rituals. Another one, we should not associate with materialists except to elevate them. So those are different principles, and you could find a lot more. This is examples of what is a principle. A principle is a statement. It's a complete thought. It's a sentence. It's not a title. And it's not in the form of a question. It's in the form of a statement. And it communicates a universal truth that is illustrated by that verse and purport of the scripture. All right. Now, practice. All right. I'd like everybody to find at least, at least, at least one principle. You're welcome to find five, six, seven, or eight from this verse and purport. You can work alone if you like to work alone. If you really don't like to work alone, you can work with a partner. And if you're really social, you can work with a group. (laughs) As you like. We will not force the introverts to work with a group, and we will not force the extroverts to work alone. So you choose your preferred way of working, and please come up. (laughs) Please come up with at least, at least one principle. If you can come up with five, six, seven, um, we're not going to take too much time to do this. About five minutes. Okay, ready, set, go. Okay, how many of you found at least one principle? Raise your hand if you found at least one principle, please. And how many of you found two? Anybody find more than four? Okay, let's go on to our sample. So our sample, we're going to choose the principle. We should not associate with materialists except to elevate them. So then, again, uh, the next step after that is going to be to personalize it. So when we're teaching this, when we're actually teaching it, we're going to first establish that the principle is true universally. We're not going to personalize it immediately when we're actually teaching. First, we want people to accept that the principle is true in general, and then they can accept that it's true for them. I can't convince you that it's true for you until I convince you that it's true in general, usually. Usually. What happens by people understanding that something is true in general is then it opens up their mind and their heart to accepting that it's true for them. Does that make sense to everybody? 
Okay? If, if I try to convince you personally that a lot of your relationships within this world are not as loving and caring and selfless as you think they are, would you probably be resistant to that idea? Right? But if I first convince you that relationships in the world in general are often not as loving or caring or selfless as other people think they are, (laughs) as people in general think they are, and you're going, yeah, that's true, then say, well... Why should you be the exception? And then people will say, wow, wow, this is true for me too. So you first, you need to convince people that your principle is true. Then after that, you're going to try to convince them that it's true for them. By the way, when you try to convince people that it's true, that something is true, whether universally or personally, please don't do it as as a me and you thing. Okay. If it's universally true, then it's also true for yourself, yes? So it's much more a we. That makes sense to everybody? So when you have a teacher who's like, you and you, and <laughs> it, should be, it should be we. Also, if I'm admitting that it's true for me, it really helps you to admit that it's true for you. If I'm sitting in front of everybody, which is not an easy place to sit all the time, by the way, But if if I'm sitting in front of everybody and I'm saying, oh, this is a universal principle and it's also true for me and I'm saying that in front of everybody, then then your audience is much more likely to be willing to say, gosh, if she could admit that in front of all of us, then I can maybe admit it also. That doesn't mean you have to put out all of your, you know, nobody wants to hear all of your stuff. But as as a general at least as a general principle. Is that you follow? Yes? I don't even want to hear all my stuff, what to speak of anybody else. I'm not suggesting that. Okay, now you want to take your principle and personalize it. So here's an example. How our association affects our consciousness, determination, and happiness. Examples and stories. So how would we take this principle and personalize it? We could, I could tell the story of how I was in college and I was trying to practice Krishna consciousness when I was 17. And I had really made a decision. I'm going to practice Krishna consciousness. I'm going to be a devotee. And some girls who lived in the building, who were sort of kind of my friends, they said, now you're going to be 18 on your birthday. You should go see an R movie. Do they have R movies here? You know what R movies are? They're movies where they don't let children go in. So I said, you should see one of those movies now that you're 18, now that you're not a child. And I said, well, I want to practice Krishna consciousness. I don't want to see any movies. What to speak of our movies? And, and they, oh, come on, please. You've got to do it at least once before you go move into the ashram. And, you know, you're 18 now. And, why, and, you know, and, all. and by their association, I went with these two girls to the movie. It was a terrible movie. Oh, it's horrible. Unfortunately, I can still remember it. It was about some crazy lady who killed a bunch of people with an axe. It was terrible, terrible, terrible movie. Just horrible, really horrible. Uh, the whole time I was there, I was like, why did I come and see this movie? And, and one of the things that, one of the many, I learned many things from that, but one of the many things that I learned is we have to be careful about who our friends are. That, it, that our friends can convince us to do things that we don't really want to do. And they can convince us to be things that we don't really want to be. And on the other hand, 
you know, if we have the right friends, if we have the right friends, they can help us to be who we really want to be. They can help us to achieve our goals. You know, I'm sure if we all think about, you know, do we have people like that in our lives both ways? You know, we have some people that when we get around them, we find, we, we do things like, oh, you know, I decided I wouldn't eat any sweets, but somehow when I'm around them, you know, they're eating all this chocolate, and so I eat some too, and oh, and then later I regret it. And then you have other people that just when you're with them, you feel inspired, and you feel enlivened, and you feel enthused. You talk about Krishna, and you just, you just feel so excited about Krishna consciousness in the association of those people. And so, you know, you just, yes, I can do Krishna consciousness. Well, if they can do it, I can do it. And I'm sure we all have these kind of experiences. Okay, what did I just do? I just did this, folks. Right? Okay? Did it work? Did you follow me? Okay? Did you feel right now here in the class that this principle is true for you? And that was only like 30 seconds even. If I was really teaching a class, I'd spend a lot more time on that, a lot more examples. And you could give examples from the Shastra, so many examples from the Shastra that Krishna does with the Badaharis, for example, with so many examples of bad association and a lot of examples of good association. By the way, when you personalize, this is kind of a side point, whenever you personalize, uh, remember that some people are more inspired by negative and some people are more inspired by positive, and that just is what it is, what it is, what it is. You will not make everybody only be inspired by positive or only be, everybody only inspired by negative. And we all have a little of both. We all have a little of both. We all, we're all inspired a little bit about what we don't want and a little bit about what we do want. And the Shastra has examples of both. So the Shastra has examples of what terrible things happen when you're in illusion and what wonderful things happen when you're enlightened. Am I correct? Whole sections of the Shastra of what's the terrible thing about being a materialist and whole sections of the Shastra about what's the wonderful thing about being a spiritualist. So both are there. Both are there. The Bhagavad Gita has both. The Bhagavatam has both. Chaitanya Charitamrita has both. So as a teacher, when you are personalizing your principle, you want to use both negative and positive examples. First of all, some people in your audience, if you only use negative examples, it will not touch them people who are very positively oriented. The negative examples will not move them. And if you only use positive examples, the people in your audience who are very negatively oriented will not be affected. So you want to use, and because each of us has some of both, it's just wise to use at least one of each in each class. Like for, for myself, I gave just a negative example just now of that association, but I could also give a, a positive example. And I could talk about how you know, I went to Denmark in uh, the late 90s, and I was working on a project there. We're putting a Krishna Conscious Encyclopedia on multimedia. And I was able to work 14 or 16 hours a day without being tired because the people that I work with were, were so into the project, and they were so organized. Everything was just there. I just had what I needed. And I felt like, wow, I really fit here, and I could just do Krishna Consciousness every minute of every day. Whereas when I was just home alone in my room, sometimes it's difficult. Oh, how am I going to get this project done? Oh, it's really difficult. What do I do next? Oh, it's taking so long. Oh, it's so hard. But when I was there with that team spirit, it was so easy. So easy. So that's a positive example. Is that clear to everybody? Right? Something, some, you want to think of a way where your principle is real for your audience. Now, you want to think of examples that are general enough 
so that everyone in your audience can relate to them, examples, stories, etc. Um, but not so unrelated to the lives of the people you're speaking with. So you have, want to have some idea of who your audience is. You know, if everyone in your audience is married with children, you're going to give some different examples and stories than if everyone in your audience is, you know, 85. Okay? Or if everyone in your audience is a temple brahmachari, or everyone in your audience is a woman, or everyone in your audience is Indian, or everyone, you know, or everyone in your audience is a second-initiated devotee who's been practicing Krishna consciousness for at least 15 years. Your examples are going to be different than you will give if you're speaking just to new people or if you're speaking just to children. So how you personalize this has to be oh, personal. Duh. But again, we often don't think this way, and, and I give the example many times. I would take the children to Bhagavatam class, and often the Bhagavatam speakers would say things like, well, all of us have been born in very sinful families. And I would think, oh, wait a minute, there's 20 children of devotees here in the temple room. It's like they didn't see them. They were just invisible ones. So when you personalize it, it's got to be personalized for the persons that are in your audience and what's going to be real to them. And, of course, this can sometimes be a real challenge when you have a super mixed audience. When you have an audience of people who've been devotees for 40 years and people who just walked in the door that minute and people who are, you know, 12 years old and people who are 85 years old and men and women and ashram residents and people living outside and people with jobs and people with businesses and people with children and people without children. Nah! You know, and then, then you really got to look for the universal personalizations. You're still making it a pers- personal, but you have to be a little bit more universal. You know, it's, it's got to be more like, okay, I'm sure we all have people in our life who inspire us. If you're speaking only to bankers, you know, you can make it a lot more specific. Okay, clear? So now we're going to practice again. So pick one of the principles, just one of the principles. Pick one of the principles, one of the principles, and figure out how would you personalize it. Okay, go back to either working by yourself or with a partner or with a group. And you have here about maybe three minutes Whoever, yes, yes, you need to have an audience. You need to choose who your audience will be. Thank you. Okay, let's go back to our sample. Let's go back to our sample. And the next important step is persuade. So we found our principle. We should not associate with materialists except to elevate them. We've personalized this. We've given some examples, some stories. Uh, something that people have been able to understand how this principle is true in their own life. Now we're going to ask them to do something with this. And if you've done these two parts right, people will be very hungry for what you're going to do next. They'll, they'll be begging. They'll be just like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Is what will be going on in their mind. So here's some examples that you could say, okay, why don't you think of one way in which you now associate with materialists? Is there some way? You know, now we understand that some people's association is really harmful to us and other people's really helps us. Is there, is there some way in our life that we're associating with materialists that's really harmful for our spiritual advancement? Maybe it's somebody at work, somebody at school, maybe it's someone in the family, maybe it's on the media. You know, is, is there something in my life, some, some way I'm associating my life that's hurting me? Or maybe... There's a way that I could improve my association with devotees. 
Are there particular devotees that really inspire me, but I don't talk to them much, I don't interact with them much, or maybe when I interact with the devotees, it's just about, you know, some practical things like how are we going to put gas in the car or something like that. And you know, I hardly ever talk to the devotees about Krishna. So are there certain people I could associate with more? Are there certain ways that I could associate with the devotees more? You know, maybe, maybe more time that I could spend with devotees? Or, you know, like I, like I know somebody who set up a little group on the Internet, you know, just like four or five people, where every day somebody posts some quote that they read. And they just have, and sometimes they have some discussion, and people just interact whenever they have time. And the devotees were telling me that, that doing this was so exciting and enlivening for them. It really changed their whole life. You know, also I know like some married couples where they made a decision they were going to read Prabhupada's books together every day, even just for 10, 15 minutes, and they came up with a study system. I know one couple that used a study system from Krishna Dharma and Chintamani in, in uh, London, and they found that after two study sessions together of 15 minutes each, the problems in their marriage completely turned around. And I wish I was, you know, I'm not making that up. I mean, it sounds fantastic, but it's really what happened. So is, is there some simple thing that we could do like that, either to cut off from our life some association with materialistic persons that's harmful to us or some way that we could increase the quality or quantity or both of our association with devotees? And, and that could be devotees in our neighborhood. It could be devotees in the Shastra. It could be devotees from another place. Uh, maybe that's something that we could do. I mean, so right now it's about 10 to 3 on a Sunday and... Uh, maybe there's something we could do, let's say, by, by tonight, before we go to bed tonight, really make a decision. We could Something we could even try for a week. Um, so between now and next Sunday, okay, what's... It could be a small thing. It could be just a, a little tiny thing. You know, I, I'm not going to watch any videos about cats on Facebook anymore. Or, you know, some, for one week, you know. I'm just not going to any, watch any more Facebook cat videos for the rest of the week. Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that, that every day I, I talk to one devotee friend about something I read in Srila Prabhupada's books. I'm going to find some devotee friend, and we're going to call each other, or we're going to email, or we're going to chat, or something, and we're just going to share something that we read in Prabhupada's books or some realization. It could be something really simple like that that doesn't take much of our time and effort. So if each of us could think of something, you know, think of a plan. What could I do? What could I do? starting tonight for the next week till next Sunday, that, that would really help my association. It may be a small, sometimes, you know, you find that little thing, that little thing only takes another minute or two a day or five minutes a day and makes a big qualitative difference in your life. Okay, so that's the per- sample of persuade. And here we're... Um, the last step in the practice. All right. Now, each of you think of a persuade. You have your principle. You have your personalized. So back to your own work or your, par- or your partner or your group. What are you going to ask people to do? Okay? Five minutes for that. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, and, the, of course, the best way to become good at this is to practice and practice and practice and practice 
and practice. And the first few times you do it, it will be hard. It will take some time. And the more you do it, the better you get. Uh, my suggestion for all of you here is that you pick at least one person who's in this room right now. Pick at least one person who's in this room right now and connect with them about what you're doing in your teaching and how you're using this. So find someone in this room right now that you can connect with sometime in the next week. And this is how I'm using these principles in my own teaching. I'm finding the principle. I'm relating. I'm finding a principle that relates to people's needs. I'm personalizing it. And then I'm asking people to, I'm persuading them to do something. I'm actually persuading them to do something. Okay, and you might find that when you try teaching this way at first, it's a little awkward. Uh, but the more that you, again, the more you practice, try to get feedback from others. If you can ask someone who's also in this class to, uh, to be one of your students at some time when you're teaching and ask, how did I do? Was it clear what my one principle was? Did I convince you it was true? Did I convince it was true for you? Did you walk out of the class with something you could do? One principle for a class, convince people it's true, then it's true for you, and then what you can do. Get feedback from others. Am I doing this? Am I doing this? Ask people who are in your class. Ask anyone who is in your class. What would you say was the main idea of my class? If you could say it in one sense. Ask them. Did you believe it? What are you going to do after the class? You can have a little survey you pass out to people. What was my main idea? And I say, I'm trying to become a better teacher. What was my main idea? Did you believe it? Is there anything you plan to do about it? All right? Yes? Okay. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I don't have time for further discussions and questions because I'm supposed to be back in here in half an hour. Shila Prabhupada Ki Jai. What did I say was my principle today? It was all that all that all teaching should be for application. So my principle today was that all teaching should be for application. And hopefully I convinced you woohoo that that was true. Hopefully I convinced you it was true for you and hopefully I gave you something you could do about it. Hi, Krishna.